Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. We welcome David Showconnect to the show today of The Wine Advocate. Hello, sir. How are you? Very pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. Began to think about the uh, life in the restaurant uh, business and possibly starting a family and the uh, and the hours. And I decided mm, maybe there's a little more flexibility and a little more interest to why not just sell wine rather than uh, try to do it on, on the side. And I came from the Washington, D.C. area, so I, I had become aware that Washington was something of a of a of a center for retail purchase of wine, or at least it was certainly one of the only places uh, in the world where I'd, where I'd seen uh, and, and been into wine shops and realized that there was some serious uh, uh, opportunity there. So I figured if there, you know, reasonably looking uh, wine shop puts out an ad for uh, somebody to, to run their wine department, I'll, uh, uh, I'll bring them up and we'll see what happens. Uh, I kind of, uh, even though my experience was still limited, uh, especially European wine, uh, so my background spent time in a German university and you know a fair bit of time in, in, in Europe when I was a child. So I figured uh, correctly as it turned out that if you uh, uh, if you knew how to pronounce the French and German names well, um, you probably would come off sounding like you knew what you were talking about, even if you were uh, relatively uh, ignorant as it was at the time. So uh, I ended up uh, getting the landing the first uh, job uh, that I um, that I uh, first job offer that I responded to in. Uh, in Washington, D.C., and that became the first of three uh, um, shops that I ran uh, uh, sequentially in uh, in D.C. And, and who was in that milieu at that time? Yeah, is... well, they, they, that's the mass, amazing thing about um, uh, D.C. in that period. So I arrived in '79, uh, um, and um, I immediately was in, in my job um, uh, greeted by and uh, and uh, rung up by my two immediate predecessors in that job, who turned out to have illustrious careers uh, uh, in the uh, in the wine business. And uh, Dan Kravitz is a is a, been an importer um, sure, for many years, and yeah, and Dan Dan was just starting um, his um, actually he had just gone to work as a wine buyer for a, for a distributor, and uh, that's so he left the uh, job. Uh, and immediately after him, um, there was um, uh, Richard Watson, who became uh, um, Bobby Ketra's partner. And he and Bobby were very close, so Bobby had a close association with the shop that I took over. So they were kind of my initial uh, club of uh, <clears throat> people that introduced me to what was happening in Washington, D.C., and uh, welcomed me. And they were delighted that I was there, but they wanted to make sure they didn't have any illusions about the job uh, because the deal that I had struck with uh, my new boss was two years of hard labor in the in the trenches of retail, and then after that, uh, a schedule where I'd have uh, three weeks of uh, time to go out, travel, um, and uh, visit vineyards. And, you know, unfortunately, I had enough common sense to realize that I needed to have the opportunity to go out and get into the field. Um, maybe that was some background in terms of lepidoptery or whatever. I mean, they couldn't, I couldn't imagine that I can keep, keep, keep doing what I was doing. I was going to be faking it as long as I didn't have a chance to get down into cellars and get out into vineyards and figure out what, what really made uh, 
wine tick. So, you know, they, they just wanted me to know that nobody had ever, that the two-year deal had been struck before, but nobody had ever lasted more than a year or maybe a year and a half, you know, this establishment. But I'm, I'm a patient guy, and, uh, and so it worked out for me. And uh, indeed, it was only because of the circumstances uh, and the sale of that uh, property for the, putting in the subway lines and the fact that there wasn't a successor in the family. It was, you know, like a lot of the uh, great wine shops uh, in the U.S., uh, Rex Wine and Spirits there in uh, in uh, D.C. was uh, a second generation because the uh, original proprietors were the folks who took it over right after Prohibition was ended. And uh, so it was a family undertaking in people that uh, no doubt had something to do uh, uh, with the uh, with the uh, uh, hospitality or beverage business even before then, but uh, it was a second generation that was uh, uh, unfortunately destined to end with the second generation because the uh, the next generation wasn't really interested in uh, in um, doing that uh, sort of work. But anyway, so that was my sort of commercial introduction. And then um, it very quickly, I began to realize just how, um, even at the time, understood just how uh, special a place the D.C. and the D.C. area was at the time. Um, I'd heard about Robert Parker's Wine Advocate, and in fact, I'd read a few issues, and um, I guess it was Danny Haas, uh, who, who actually had happened lived there, but he used to call on me down in, uh, in uh, North Carolina. Of Vineyard Brands. Uh, right, exactly. And uh, he was the first person handed me a copy of this journal and uh, said, you know, you really, you need to read this. This is a, a new way of looking. I mean, we, we were quite aware that this was a new approach to uh, evaluating wine. And he saw it right away as a great tool. And actually also it helped that he represented Bocastel, which was a favorite of, uh, in, he, he was one of the first, uh, if I'm not mistaken, one of the first wines to crack 90 points in, in the early issues. And uh, at that time, that was known as the um, Baltimore, Washington wine advocate. And uh, with each issue came the uh, white pages. And the, the white pages were a list of the shops in the area and, and the Baltimore and the Washington uh, vicinities where some of the wines that were being talked about could be found. And Bob spent a lot of time traipsing the streets and visiting the shops to see for himself what was uh, what was going on. And uh in addition, then it transpired that he was extremely generous as a mentor for a lot of the folks that were working in retail, uh, in and uh, and uh, in the um, uh, restaurant business too in that uh, market at the time. And so uh, it was very uh, it didn't take much to to get invited over to the house and pull bottles from the cellar and uh, really have very uh, very uh, freewheeling conversations about all kinds of wine. And it was certainly um, still a period of discovery for, for him too, because it was just on the, really on the cusp of becoming famous when he, when he wrote about the, uh, the 1982 Bordeaux in, in particular. Then, uh, so this only ta- this takes us to, to what, uh, maybe 1982, 1983. Uh, at that point, I was getting done with my indentured servitude, actually for a variety of reasons. I didn't really get um, I, I made my first trip uh, to France at that point. I didn't really get a chance to take an extended um, time in Europe until uh, 1984. And uh, then I, uh, by that time, I had had uh, two really interesting and eventually seminal uh, um, meetings in, in, in D.C. Um, the one was sort of analogous to the... Um, to the Robert Parker situation, that was meeting Steve Tanzer. Um, Steve had family in Bethesda, so although he was a New Yorker, he um, he had close affiliation with the uh, D.C. area, and uh, his journal had had started out as a New York wine cellar. Uh, so it really was very analogous at the time to what Bob was doing, except uh, that there were just a few reviews. It wasn't at that time out to review a tremendous number of wines. Uh, there were interviews with people who. Um, uh, Steve found interesting uh, in the trade and the business. And then the rest of the journal, which in his case was more than half the pages, were simply devoted to the wines that could be found uh, in the shops in uh, New York. It's it's hard to believe at the time you could put all the wines that you thought were really interesting uh, inside of maybe 15 pages into fine print at all of the shops that you felt would be at all worth uh, worth uh, uh, shopping at in, in uh, the New York area. And so uh, he came down to, on one of his trips down to, to D.C., um, he m- m- decided he would make the rounds and do uh, a D.C. issue. In fact, he'd already done that once for London. He'd uh, 
Uh, I think the first time that he that he did a, an issue uh, that was not New York centered was was a, was a trip to London, and and he'd, so he'd listed all the interesting wines that he'd found in all the uh, uh, shops uh, in London. And again, um, I think it's fair to say that the situation was really very analogous. In other words, once you'd gotten through the uh, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Rhone, uh, and in the case of the United States, to California, uh, you'd pretty much gotten to the end of most of what anybody thought in those days was was interesting or worth collecting in wine, and uh, so relatively few uh, names got you through. So he came to D.C. and figured he would do a D.C. issue. And so um, that, he came in the shop, and that's how I got to uh, know him. And then um, at around the same time, um, uh, a young man from uh, who had traveled in quite a few parts of the world but had been living in Germany came back to the D.C. area, which is the closest thing that he had to a home base since his um, his uh, uh, dad's business had, ta- had, had brought him to many different parts of the world. That was Terry Thies. And uh, Terry made the rounds, started to make the rounds of the shops in D.C. because he figured he was going to try to parlay his uh, interest in wine into a, into a job in wine. And uh, came into my shop and uh, very quickly uh, transpired that I had some decent collection of German wine, only just really a cultural interest in things uh, German because of having spent time in German university. And he was quite amazed to find out that I really didn't know all that much about it, but I was certainly uh, eager to learn and uh, and a German speaker. And so uh, then he started to mentor me uh, in matters Venice and not just, but, but certainly specifically also in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, German Riesling and appreciating uh, German Riesling, I said, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm I just uh, have begun to travel um, um, to visit vineyards, and I'm going back in uh, in uh, spring for uh, of uh, 1984 for extended uh, um, trip." And uh, so he said, "Well, you know, it, it's crazy that you wouldn't go to Germany," and uh, and so he persuaded me that I should take at least a, a week of my time uh, in Germany and uh, prepare a list of um, of growers for me to visit. And so, um, as a result of that trip, then uh, really my mentor, sort of in in things Burgundian, very quickly became Becky Wasserman, as she of course mentored many people in that area, both both uh, merchants and uh, growers. And uh, so between the two of them, that was pretty, uh, that was pre- pretty remarkably good luck uh, on my part to be able to immediately um, visit people who really got their hands dirty in the vineyards um, and uh, who were not, um, not to put too fine a point on it, you know, not bullshit artists or, or, or propagandists for their own wine. Of course, you, you're going to meet those naturally, but uh, to meet quickly some people who are really um, whose um, whose opinions about their own wine were uh, were worth listening to, and who uh, you know were self critical and really uh, disciplined in what, in what they did. So I came back just completely inspired by uh, uh, German Riesling and uh, and uh, Burgundian wine above all, uh, uh, Cote Pinot Noirs, and those are certainly two the two great loves still. Uh, for me. So I, when I got back, then I was really full of myself at that point. Um, I hadn't, uh, I, I really had not, for 10 years, I'd been away from Germany. I hadn't even really spoken German. Um, you know, I used to read Die Zeit, uh, and I still do week, weekly. Other than that, uh, you really had no connection with things German. And I didn't even think about the uh, um, even the close uh, uh, wine connections. Um, and that's kind of hard to believe today, but um, I was in university uh, for part of my career in 72 and 73. And uh, back then, uh, the Germans weren't drinking their own wine. And in fact, really, for the most part, Germans didn't become really seriously enthusiastic about their own Riesling wines until the last 15 years, uh, 15 to 20 years. And uh, it's one reason why so many foreigners, like well, from, from Hugh Johnson to Stuart Piggott, most prominently, but certainly others, a lot of foreigners ended up being people, and eventually, certainly as merchants, Rudy Wiest and Terry Thies, they ended up being the people that really sparked a revival interest in German wine and had to uh, sort of bring the, bring the Germans themselves uh, kicking and screaming back to the table. So I, I actually spent a little bit of time in Alsace because I'd, I'd spent some time in Alsace as a kid and I loved the area. And at, and those visits, I, I, I took a visit in the cellar tour and you and in, uh, in 72 and, and, and tasted and, and that was wonderful um, what a shame that I had no idea that it was the vintage of the century for Riesling 1971 in all these cellars I, dr- I went on the train up and down the Rhine repeatedly uh, 
through 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 Trier and so forth, I was just oblivious to wine. My interests at the time were history and philosophy, and I carried my fiddle with me everywhere, and I was doing a lot of a lot of um, uh, playing and for spare change and just for uh, love of it. And that was keeping me so occupied at that period of time that I just um, was pretty much oblivious of uh, of wine. Uh, I'm quite conv- quite sure in retrospect that had somebody simply taken me by the hand at that point and taken me down into some t- the right cellars in the Mosul or the Rheingau and it tastes 1971s from the barrel, I would have probably, my career would have gotten a a great jump start and a head start. I would have skipped all the rest of that stuff, and I would have. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I would have gotten the wine bug and uh, and and dove right in at that point, and I would have been able to say that I started with uh, what is perhaps still the greatest uh, vintage in, uh, in modern times for Riesling. Anyway, that didn't happen. But um, so when I got back in in '84 from uh, from finally uh, returning to Germany and doing it completely, concentrating on uh, on tasting uh, wines. The whole way, then I, you know, was pretty full of myself and uh, certainly really inspired um, by what I'd found. And uh, I wanted to bring Terry together with Steve Tanzer. So <clears throat> when he was in town, he said, "Well, we'll you know, we'll get together." Well, actually, yeah, I think it was it was on my impetus um, rather than Terry's. Anyway, we got together just like we are here, um, sat around little apartment, and and just you know, Terry opened up bottles as he had been doing for me by then for some time, and we just talked about what was happening in Germany and how exciting it was. And, and Steve really uh, caught on to that and he ended up um, devoting uh, two uh, issues to the interviews that we, that we did. And uh, I mean, it was kind of ridiculous. Uh, it was not the first time. Um, I mean, it's not the last time that I came off uh, as, as uh, I suppose, looking like an expert, even though I was just barely, uh, barely getting my uh, feet wet. Uh, but uh, I must've sounded reasonably authoritative. And Steve said, yeah, it'd be great if you would uh, think about uh, writing about some of these wines or Alsace wine because we'd already talked that subject uh, rather thoroughly and uh, and I'd actually just recently I had done it. Terry had put me in touch with people on a magazine called Friends of Wine. There was an organization for many years in the U.S. that uh, that organized wine tastings and promotion and had a, a journal and and Terry wrote reports for them from Europe and so uh, he had put me in together with them and I'd written a little bit about Alsace because it was the first place that I'd gone back to and the one of the only places that I actually knew uh, what was going on in terms of wine so I actually ended up doing my first report for Steve from Alsace then very shortly thereafter did a German report and the evolution of the of, of his journal of course was that uh, he began to devote more and more space to actually reviewing the wines and talking about the individual wines and so uh, I became a regular fixture there and uh, uh, wrote vintage by vintage. Um, at that time, he was um, just well. At that time, uh, Bob Parker too was uh, was still had another profession to apply and was doing this uh, uh, on the side, just a very very serious uh, hobby that was you know, taking over his life or his second career. And uh, so I, once I got really involved with the scene in uh, in, uh, in DC, I had much more opportunity to travel. And for instance, I started to do the dog and pony show in Bordeaux. And um, so then, uh, it, it, speaking of coming off of a, un, unwittingly as something of an expert, why uh, at, at, at some point, uh, Steve said, you know, I, I want to get uh, good Bordeaux reports in on a regular basis, but it's just not possible for me to do all the traveling. And he said, you know, you're over there anyway. He said, would you mind uh, sharing your notes? I mean, he really meant just personally, you know, he'd like to see what was going on. And well, these, these are the days, you know, when you had to write it. Uh, well, I, I actually had already started taping my notes, but, you know, everything was typed out, a little, you know, TypeScript on a typewriter, and I put them all together a semi-stat style, and, I mean, I would eventually excerpt these things for my customers of the wines that I intended to buy, but, uh, and the vintage at the time that we were, that was, this was in 89, so we were tasting the, the 88, so uh, I sent him my uh, on-premier notes, and the next thing he said, well, can I publish them? Well, I said, yeah, sure. But uh, it's only the second, I guess it was the third time that I'd been to Bordeaux at that point. And uh, so that was pretty funny because uh, the backstory was that uh, he'd uh, he'd been working with David Peppercorn, uh, who'd been writing, uh, um, he'd been publishing uh, David's notes on uh, on Bordeaux. And uh, he'd become um, a bit miffed about two things. First of all, that the wines were, that the same notes were turning up other places. You know, he kind of had the feeling that he was going to get the, the scoop on on David's notes, or at least a, a separate version of the, of the notes. So secondly, he thought, 
and this is uh, this is sort of uh, uh, still the case to some uh, to some extent. I think uh, different styles and different nationalities. People have different styles of writing about wine. And he said, you know, the, the Brits are so damn noncommittal. He said, after I read these, I don't get the feeling like I know what I want to rush out and 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 buy. And uh, you know, I mean. He was not the only person to recognize at the time that uh, one of the brilliant things about Bob Parker's work was that, you know, he had this ability to really give a, a, a vivid sense, not just of the wine, but of his enthusiasm for the wine. And uh, Steve was certainly uh, great at doing that as well. And so he really wanted to find people who would share that um, that approach. And so the next thing you know, it comes out the uh, the the, uh, inter- the then, interna- I believe, yes, we had, had already become international wine seller at that point as uh, 1988 Bordeaux, two views. And here's the guy who literally wrote the book that everybody read at the time about Bordeaux and me <laughs> knowing essentially rather little about the subject in parallel pages, wine by wine. And so it was a really interesting study in um, in contrasting styles, as well as in some cases, of course, contrasting opinions about the wines. And even I was a little bit cowed by being put in that position. But uh, as it turned out, he invited me, if I would, to to go back and do the same thing again for the 89 vintage, because travel for him uh, was still uh, a challenge. And my mentor in, in Bordeaux was Bill Blatch, um, Bintex, also an incredibly lucky uh, find. Uh, I mean, not, I suppose some, I don't even remember how exactly I stumbled into him first. Just some other folks wisely recommended it to me as a sort of guerrilla negociant, small scale negociant, who had, among other things, a, a, a special passion for Sauterne. And anyway, so Bill became really my mentor. Well, then it turned out that he had already by that time gotten in the business of setting up uh, the appointments for a lot of people in Bordeaux because he was, he, you know, unlike most of the negos, he was somebody who had just a really uh, serious detail and interest in viticulture, uh, especially in, in, in matters climatic and all. When he produced, and he, as he st- still has until very recent years, a, a, a vintage review, it was a vintage review on a, on a scale of thoroughness and especially as regards meteorological details that you would never, never see anywhere else. And so the funny thing was, and so it came time to, to, to be set, uh, set up to do 89s. He said, you know, this is starting to get to be a crowded business. Um, I'm starting to get a lot of people who want to come over and do uh, uh, the tastings. And in those days, I mean, I never tasted in uh, or almost never tasted in in tasting rooms. I mean, I mean, in, in, in big, uh, shall we say, uh, bench uh, bench tastings. Instead, we would go you go from door to door to the chateau and, uh, you know, 20 minutes, uh, 20 minutes a pop and, you know, go from from eight until eight. And uh, you'd only have two wines to taste. And uh, if you were lucky, then you got a chance to do a little bit of tasting from the barrel. So you could you know, ascertain that uh, that they weren't spoofing you on the uh, samples. Uh, and uh, he said, so it's getting pretty crowded, so I, I want to hook you up with a couple of other folks. I hope you don't mind. It was Serena Sutcliffe and David Peppergrind. I said, oh, this should be interesting. And of course, then I found out they were just wonderful people. And uh, he, he thought probably just as amusing that we had appeared together in the pages of Steve's journal as I did. And uh, uh, and so then they, they were really a, another source of... Um, of um, help and inspiration, and uh, so I continued to do uh, um, Bordeaux as long as I was in the in the retail business, and then uh, eventually, after I became uh, moved out to the Midwest and developed a much m- broader um, uh, sort of wine work and got into distribution, then I ended up uh, ironically uh, doing my um, for my swan song the last uh, vintage I did on Premiere were the ninety fives, and I did it with Steve because it just happened that he was going over by then. He was of course doing regular reports uh, um, himself, um, and uh, I was planning to do the uh, um, the uh, the last uh, dog and pony show at about the same time, and so he said, "Hey, wouldn't it be great to?" So it's funny because uh, in a I guess it was 86 must have been. Also, I crossed paths with Terry for four or five days. So those were the two occasions when I when I actually traveled with uh, uh, a colleague um, for whom I was writing or uh, or with whom I was uh, uh, had had a relationship as, as a uh, as a mentor or a wine writer. Otherwise, I I, I traveled solo. But uh, that was. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely very happy in retrospect that uh, it, it, every, almost everybody who was seriously into wine in those days was interested in Bordeaux anyway, but to have gotten sort of an inside look at that uh, and to see the amazing contrast between the structure of um, of wine and the mentality of thinking about wine in Burgundy and the mentality in Bordeaux, those 
those two poles, of course, they run through uh, the um, um, approaches to wine in in most countries in the world, and and so to really get a look inside uh, uh, both of those was uh, was definitely a, a lucky break for me. Even though my my heart still beat uh, stronger, without question, in the Cote d'Or than in than in Bordeaux, but uh, that was my uh, so that was my parallel. Uh, work and as I said, uh, so uh, uh, why I didn't uh, continue the uh, um, the love of California wine? Well, yes, to some extent, but I, I just got so busy doing other things. There was a um, a very big, uh, well-established retailer in D.C., uh, MacArthur's, uh, Addy Basson, uh, and is still a, a major shop in Washington D.C. And they set out to become the really first major retail force in California wine. Um, I, I know some of my friends and. In New York, have have corrected me on on some details, and I'm certainly not an expert on the trade in New York. But I, I mean, I do have to say that in the uh, in the early '80s and mid '80s, and my my mom's family was originally, well, North Jersey by way, way of Brooklyn. Actually, was born in Montclair myself, and then I moved out of the area. But I was always getting back to New York, and so I, uh, after I got into wine, I certainly had a lot of opportunities to to traipse the streets. And obviously, you didn't even need to do that with Steve's uh, approach. Uh, you could read about what the shops were selling. Um, every other month, and uh, I have to say that uh, we had uh, we had wines for sale in uh, interesting uh, approaches in Washington with the diversity of wine that uh, you just didn't see at the time uh, in uh, in New York, and uh, particularly Addy Basson's place. I mean, they were doing they started doing barrel tastings early on with the growers in California. They, all the growers would come once a year, maybe even more than once a year. And uh, they were they were so seriously involved in, in California one that I thought there's no point in my even trying to get involved in this game. They're they're near enough. They're the lodestar, and so I wanted to concentrate on doing other things that I could do well. And, uh, and besides the uh, um, the newborn infatuation with Burgundy and uh, and with uh, Riesling, unfortunately, I inherited connections, uh, tra- trade connections with, for for the Burgundy wines, especially, but also for the German wines from Dan Kravitz and from. Um, um, uh, Richard Watson from my predecessors in uh, in DC. So uh, um, and then Terry also introduced me to the Loire wine, and I can remember you know first time getting wines from Foro and Cota. I mean, honestly, and nobody I talked to in the wine trade had even heard of these people uh, at, at that point, and uh, it wasn't. Uh, uh, you know, I have to say there probably weren't very many places in the uh, in the in, in the world of wine because uh, retail as we know it here in the United States, is not really well established in in uh, other countries, uh, especially in those days, other than, uh, other than the UK. I mean, there wouldn't be very many other places where you could, you know, maybe walk into an establishment at the right time of year and you see a stack of 50 cases of Cota, <laughs> you know, Sancerre, Coulibaut, uh, or whatever. Um, but this was the kind of place that, that I operated where, you know, I had uh, whatever... Uh, Whatever excited me, I uh, tried to pass it on to customers. And so pretty soon I got a, a reputation for doing things that were esoteric simply because you didn't have to get too far out of line to, to appear uh, esoteric. And, uh, and so that's really how my, uh, my focus sort of developed more and more to, uh, to uh, French wine and German wine. And actually, the, it, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've taught, I know you've done a lot of work yourself on the history of the the trade here in in New York, but uh, then uh, I, I knew nothing about Italian wine. But the incredibly lucky break there was that there was a gentleman with a shop in Queens, Luiacucci, who uh, was bringing in uh, wonderful Italian wines, but who had a closet interest in German wine. And I actually don't remember who turned him on to German Riesling, but Terry had met him uh, in New York, and quickly they uh, they struck up a friendship, and then uh, invited me to the, he invited me to the shop. He started to come down to D.C., and so we very quickly became a wonderful um, uh, back and forth with him supplying me uh, um, connections in and, and, and wines from Italy where I knew I, I can only do so much traveling and so much uh, specialization it was not going to ever be able to, uh, to, and I don't speak Italian, I wasn't going to be able to have the, to work in Italy the way that I did in, in, in Germany or France. And so uh, then he started to have the wines, from the, some of the wines that I was bringing in from Germany. And a lot of these wines, of course, were the things that became the, also the, the basis of Terry's portfolio and his, his budding portfolio at the time. So then we had this wonderful exchange back and forth uh, with, uh, uh, with the Italian wines and Riesling. And then uh, we both got a really good break. Uh, I'm trying to remember which year this was. I think it probably was 80, also 86 uh, 
No, maybe a little bit later. Anyway, at, at some point, Howard Goldberg was doing the Times uh, uh, um, articles at that time, and he wrote a, uh, a piece about German Riesling and uh, quoted some of my material from Steve, and we chatted about uh, Riesling. And then at the time, he said, you got to go to Gold Star. It's the only place where you can buy any of these wines uh, in uh, in the New York area. And so that was a great, uh, that was a great breakthrough for me, too. <laughs> Which was Lee's shop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you were arranging uh, German samples for Parker at that time as well. Ah, uh, right. Of- so, yeah, the, I would only be tasting with Bob normally just uh, if we would meet at, at trade tastings or, you know, he would invite uh, folks over to the house and we would taste socially. Uh, but uh, by that time he was doing the, he was, he, he, he started, um, this would have been in 89 with the 1988 vintage. Um, he started to do uh, some writing about German wine and Terry was naturally keen at that point on, on getting his wines uh, um, in front of Bob. And uh, they started to do uh, some tastings. And, uh, of course, we had already a close association. So um, Bob and Terry said, hey, if you want to, you know, taste taste along. Um, and so um, we were involved in a couple of big sessions. And, you know, I thought, this is this is really great. The only limitation is that uh, Bob should see wines from, from other growers, too. And it's nobody's responsibility uh, to do that. So I thought, maybe I'll make it my responsibility. Um, as it turned out, uh, the folks that worked with uh, Rudy Vista, Rudy wasn't too keen on, uh, for a variety of reasons, on on getting his <laughs> his growers' wines in front of uh, uh, Bob Parker for reviews in the Wine Advocate. But uh, by then, it was sort of out of his hands because I'd gotten to know most of these people well enough, and you know, I explained to him exactly, you know, the nature of the journal and how things were done, and so. Uh, um, so then, for several years, I would bring together in parallel um, um, Terry showed his wines one or two days at Bob, and then I would bring samples together, naturally of things that, uh, some things that, that I was importing, but also other wines from the growers that I felt were the, at the time, the most exciting. Uh, and that was a great experience uh, because um, uh, Bob didn't have expertise in German wine, didn't pretend to have it. It goes back to sort of something I was mentioning before, where it's, you can only be a virgin uh, once and uh, in any given area you can only once have that aha uh-huh experience and uh, and come at a thing completely obliquely or out of left field which is certainly what the really good German Riesling that was the way they they certainly were for him and he he didn't uh, try to hide that uh, suddenly realized that there was some exceptional stuff out there uh, from people he'd never heard of um, but what was m- even more interesting about the uh, publication of, of these uh, notes during the uh, early 90s uh, uh, in particular um, in, in The Wine Advocate is that uh, by then Bob was famous enough that it got the attention of, uh, of, of readers around the world and particularly got the attention of people in Germany and that set up a really interesting dynamic because at the time the Germans were found, I mean the people who were involved in the, in the trade and, and the movers and shakers in terms of uh, opinion makers in Germany, not to mention of course other wine critics, uh, wine writers in Germany, I mean they thought this was just a, a, a real hoot and a holler that here was this American who knew absolutely nothing and was going out on a limb and talking like he like he knew what he was talking about how wonderful these wines were from unknown people like uh billy schaefer or helmut dernoff <laughs> and uh or or hans cleo christoffel and uh of course, the uh, joke ultimately was on the on the Germans because the Yanks were not so stupid. We uh, we had a pretty good idea what we were doing, and of course, especially uh, thanks to the lead uh, taken by Rudy Vist and, and Terry Thies as special specialist uh, importers. And so, uh, it was really f- a wonderful experience for me over the years to see how the the Germans came round to a pr- first of all just to the level of appreciation of their what a treasure they have in terms of uh, the Riesling growers, but also, quite frankly, to see that the people that we had at the top of our list uh, um, already back in the in the mid-1980s, that that list has held up remarkably well. On the other hand, if you go back and look at the hit list of the of the allegedly greatest uh, uh, Riesling growers uh, as they would have been presented uh, circa 1985 in the, in the German press, you find a lot of famous names of places that uh, that have wonderful castles and, and have great land holdings, but that were perhaps already uh, uh, resting on their laurels. And uh, a lot of people who uh, unfortunately didn't make it uh, one times uh, uh, turned uh, tougher and uh, labor costs became a huge uh, 
factor. And so it, it is certainly a certain smug satisfaction to look back and see that uh, that uh, the people who uh, shopped at uh, Rex Wine and Spirits or Gold Star and there are a few other connections uh, in in the U.S., uh, had it had it pretty good. Uh, in fact, really, if they you know if there hadn't been the long historic association with Schoonmacher um, in the U.S., uh, there really wouldn't have been uh, any uh, um, understanding of uh, of German Riesling and affiliation with any of the greatest states. And so, what was really happening for most of the United States at the time when when I, when Terry got involved and when I got involved and when Rudy got Rudy got involved at that point, what was happening everywhere in the U.S. was just the same. Those growers that Schoenmacher had established a relationship with already um, in the uh, in the interwar period. And uh, so, uh, of course, the same explosion of interest eventually uh, uh, took place in many other uh, for interest in, in wines from many other parts of the world, too. So uh, now it's simply amazing to look back and, again, to realize that you could have had the... Um, so recently as, as the mid eighties, a situation where, um, you felt like you could put all of, all of wine between two rather small covers, uh, six times a year and, uh, and cover it thoroughly. And, uh, now the, I mean, if you wanted to have a, if you wanted to have the, uh, the white pages of the Baltimore, Washington wine advocate, or if you wanted to roll back the clock and have the New York wine cellar, uh, Today, you would have a thick volume six times a year, and it would be nothing but like the phone directory listings of, of wine, and you still wouldn't get to the uh, to the end of it. And uh, it's maybe a damn good thing that we knew as little as we did back then, because otherwise we would have been so overwhelmed by uh, uh, the uh, the sheer complexity of the uh, of the subject matter that, uh, that that we might never have been able to to focus our customers' attention sufficiently to really uh, build a following for. Uh, region by region and uh, wine by wine. Although Terry was certainly, because his experience, especially in France too, I mean, he was one of those people, he, re- he realized just how incredibly, uh, um, just between France and Germany, how incredibly diverse the uh, um, the range of wines was in the world of wines, but uh, also wisely elected to uh, to specialize and focus his, uh, his attention because he couldn't discover everything uh, at once. And I suppose in... in in adjunct to what I did in Burgundy and uh, and, and Germany, the area that um, the most interested me was uh, was the Loire, because again Terry brought me to uh, to Chenin Blanc, <coughs> and uh, and again uh, that's still, you know, if I'm if there's one uh, thing that makes my my uh, heart beat strongest after uh, uh, Riesling and after uh, Cote d'Or, Pinot Noir, it would it would certainly be the Loire, especially uh, Middle Loire and. Uh, and Shannon, and then the 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 Austrian connection uh, came about quite late. Uh, I started to hear about Austrian wine from the growers in Germany, which is the same experience that Terry had. Um, other people, uh, well, Seth Allen, who started Vindivino, uh, had the uh, uh, he had the. He had the window on Austrian wine at Vinitaly because in, uh, back in the round circle of 1990, the, uh, the growers were, were going down there to, to really try to, to, to have a big audience and try to show people what, what was happening in Austria. And, I didn't but, know that. They were showing at Vinitaly? Right. They, because it was the nearest thing for them to do. And it was the one big uh, international exposition where they could appear. And uh, that's how Seth made the, made the connections. On the other hand, uh, Terry and I uh, um, and many other people I know in retrospect, they, they they got the bug through uh, um, through the uh, German growers, particularly Ernie Lozen uh, and Günter Künstler. Those were two who, you know, they'd say, "Hey, have you? Do you know anything about what's going on there?" And they said, "You you have to taste this wine." And then, you know, we'd be done tasting, and they'd go down, and they'd fetch a bottle from their cellar of Pichler or Knoll, and uh, and so that. Uh, and then Terry uh, decided that he wanted to get involved with it um, uh, commercially, and actually, then he had me back over. It was like old times' sake. We went sat around in his long-time apartment at Silver Spring, and he started opening up bottles of Austrian wine uh, that he'd collected. It was just like uh, you know, back in the old days when he was uh, mentoring me in the Loire or, or, or Germany or southwest of France. And, uh, and so then uh, I got quite excited. I, well, at the same time, um, uh, Steve had caught the bug through Steve Tanzer through um, uh, Seth, and so he went over and did a, um, a report, uh, a glowing report on on the new developments in uh, in Austrian wine. And since I had been writing, he loves the Vaca. He loves yeah. And so not, since I'd been uh, writing regularly for him for for all those many years by then, uh, and so I said, well, you know, you got to let me go over and do the next report because after all, I do speak of the lingo. And uh, and I at that point, so I had um, it had been thirty 
I mean, excuse me, 20, 25 years, almost exactly 25 years since I'd been in, in uh, Austria, in Vienna. I, I'd spent considerable time there whenever I had uh, some extra time when I was in, in Germany. I, I'd, I'd go over to Austria because of the musical uh, and, and and also philosophical connection in terms of history and philosophy, the things that I was uh, you know, had been working with academically. So... Uh, so I um, I knew the uh, I knew the uh, territory from from that angle, and so I went over, and of course was absolutely completely smitten by, um, uh, and charmed by the growers, and smitten by the wines. And uh, the, the the original deal was going to be, uh, um, as, as I re- recollect it, was Steve said, "Well, look, let's, you know, I, I, I'll take care of Alsace every other year, and you can take care of Austria every other year." But you know, once I got through it, once I said, "Oh my God, I got to make sure that I have an excuse to come back here." Um, on a regular basis. And as it happened, uh, I very briefly was involved in, in selling Austrian wine because it was just at the very end of my retail career. And I actually purchased uh, wines through Terry uh, and Seth in the early, you know, the early, well, it was the first portfolio that the first year that Terry sold. And then after that, I, I got into, uh, went into distribution and you know, in the, out in the Midwest, and luckily I got in with a company, which is of course not not unusual uh, in the in the early nineties that uh, earlier mid nineties that a company would would be a major uh, wine distributor, but have no Austrian wine and no German wine and no interest in or thought of doing those wines. And I said, great, because you know I basically brought my French expertise to the table, and it was a company that worked with Mark de Grazzi, and I'd gotten to know Marco pretty well too, so he'd. Um, you know, after um, Ayacucci's death, why um, Marco was the other influence I had in terms of Italian wine. So, so we put together a great portfolio, and I said the only deal is you keep your fingers off of German or Austrian wine because I want to have something I can still write about to, to have a different, you know, just to be able to to have that um, um, the delight in trying to <clears throat> con- convey my enthusiasm for these wines in a little bit different way, and have the opportunity to travel and visit with all the growers, not in any way partisan, because you know when you're I mean, the way that I did retail was pretty much, you know, pick and pick and choose little bits of wine from any grower that I wanted. I mean, if uh, Terry or Rudy didn't represent them, then I made an arrangement and and brought them in because, you know, DC again, uh, the the luck, uh, the luck uh, in terms of the laws, you could have a, a, a an important license as a as a retailer, so you can bring in your own uh, stuff. And uh, so uh, <clears throat> that was. Uh, and that was basically how I uh, how I was able to to balance all these uh, you know commitments to writing about the wines, but at the same time uh, I felt that there was you know I was a pretty good source of information. I certainly had no reason to play uh, favorites with anybody. I was purchasing solely on the basis of whoever I thought um, made the best wine. And uh, I mean, anyway, and in those days there there weren't jobs that even I mean, and even today very difficult to to make a living writing about wine or even to to have any return on investment writing about wine in a way that is not uh, you know tied to the trade and is really uh, independent. So um, that of course was one of the uh, important aspects of uh, of what Bob did and also uh, what Steve was doing. So when I got into distribution, I thought, now this is great. You know, now I'll be in a situation I have no more commercial involvement with these wines whatsoever. And um, by the time that I left uh, eight years ago now, it's been um, seven and a half, eight years ago, by the time I left uh, distribution, I can tell you the company I worked for was panning almost for me to get out the door in particular so that they could start bringing in German and Austrian wine. And of course, uh, certainly a a lot of satisfaction for those of us who were down in the trenches uh, early on uh, proselytizing on behalf of these wines to see uh, the the resurrection of, uh, of, of a of a prestige for, for German Riesling. Uh, whereas the Austrian phenomenon, I mean, that I think is really singular. Um, I mean, the Austrians love to, um, to, to go on about this. And actually, I just was talking with somebody the other day, once I get, when I'm next back, wants to interview me for a program that they're doing about the meteoric rise of Austrian wine internationally. But that is a, a, an amazing story uh, in and of itself. And, uh, and I think it's a, just like the, the, the serious interest in German wine, I, I'm quite sure it's a lasting interest. I mean, it may be that there will be some fashion to wax and wane in, in individual countries, but um, the, the, one of the big advantages, of course, in, in Austria was that they cleaned house completely on the trade in the scandal of uh, 1985. And at that point, uh, well, and, and secondly, that it's a, it's a wine-drinking country. I mean, Germany was essentially only regionally within the growing areas, certainly, and in certain parts of Germany, wine was the beverage of choice. But for the country as a whole, beer 
to, and, and commercially beer totally dominated over wine. Austria, on the other hand, a truly wine drinking nation, just as France at least traditionally was and just as, uh, as Italy was and, and is. So that was a huge uh, advantage because once they cleaned house on the uh, existing structure, people felt that the only way that they could be confident about getting good wine was, it's a small country anyway, was to really establish relationships individually with growers to know who was, uh, who was putting it in the bottle. And so as a result, you very quickly developed this incredible consumer culture of people really with a serious awareness of, as well as passion for, for wine within their own country. And uh, that's one of the things that, re that, that really allowed the top growers in Austria, of course, obviously the quality of the wine per se was a huge uh, factor, but but having that sort of fan club back home, and what a contrast that was with Germany when uh, I got started uh, selling those wines in the early '80s. As I say, uh, people in Germany didn't really talk about their own wine, and if they if people were if you were a wine snob, it automatically meant you were into French wine. Um, so uh, that obviously meant that they had a bit of a ball and chain to drag behind them, just in terms of the lack of recognition and uh, enthusiasm at home. On the other hand, that was great from the standpoint of marketing, and and because a lot of the a lot of the wines that I uh, brought in were uh, these were in many cases the first time that the well certainly that the wines had been in the United States, and that was the case for most of the people that Terry. Um, put into his portfolio, but also for many of these growers, it was the first time that the wines had ever been sold outside of the local area. Um, I had an old bottle of Falkensteiner Hof, um, um, uh, Trocken that I brought to Chamber Street yesterday afternoon because, uh, um, Laurel Skarlberg is, uh, <clears throat> repping those wines now and they've never, they haven't been in the U.S. since I stopped, uh, importing them, which was in 92. I, I brought in 88s, 89s, 90s, and 91s. And so it was really funny because I, I dredged out this bottle of 89 and, uh, after I cleaned the, the cork out, I'd sniffed it, and then I, I just, somebody was at the end of the young wines, and so I said, oh, don't leave, you have to taste this older wine. And uh, and she was quite smitten with the, with the wine, and crestfallen to discover that um, that it wasn't for sale. I said, ma'am, it's not only not for sale, I said, I'm going to tell you, I will put my hand in the fire that this is the first time that this wine has been tasted in 30 years. And I don't think that she actually got quite the import of what I was saying. I meant truly, nobody has probably opened a bottle of this wine in 30 years, because back then, um, uh, Eric Faber was like a lot of people, uh, um, not just uh, traditionalists, but in his case, he was, a, he was an outsider who came uh, to wine. He said, I want to see what it'd be like to make wine the way my grandfather would have made wine. And if he had been a, a vintner, you know, roll back the clock. Uh, and, and I mean, he was doing things that we now think of as, as, as the, the cutting edge when nobody, uh, I mean, spontaneous fermentation in barrel, long elevage in barrel, low sulfur, organic viticulture, da-da-da-da-da-da. Anyway, so the thing is, he was just so delight happy that he had a raving customer base. He'd just take his van around all over Germany and found little cells of people who were amenable to who to drinking fine, dry, czar, Riesling. And uh, as a result, it still is the, the basis of his business is an incredibly tiny list of incredibly enthusiastic uh, um, wine drinkers who buy from him 40, 50 cases a year. So uh, he never kept any wine. And uh, I've got some, also some wines from, from the Lowers that I brought for the uh, Poloi for the uh, event uh, tonight for the Riesling Fire. And, uh, you know, th those are wines that they don't have at home. Everybody drank these wines up, and I knew his customer base all drank them up. And so the only place where you'd find any of these wines are the people that I sold them to uh, in those days were, were already, uh, if you will, wine geeks. And so people put these wines aside in, in their cellars and... Uh, and uh, but the but as it happened, that particular Falkensteiner Hof Auslitz a truck, and I know there was so little of that wine came over. I I think I had a list of, of the five people or whatever who bought any, and and unfortunately they've all either passed for the scene or we've recently corresponded, and we know that we hadn't tasted the wine in 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 all in all those many years. So again, that's really just a, 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 a that's something after 1985 that just didn't happen in Austria. I mean, in other words, if you came even if you came completely out of the blue and started to make outstanding wine. Within a couple of years, uh, everybody who was into wine knew about it. And, you know, even today, I mean, I, I do a column for Venaria and, uh, and, and do, uh, when I have time, some, some other um, writing over there. And uh, that is one of three glossy, paper, still paper as well, of course, online also, but uh, glossy paper journals 
that come out six to or seven, depending on the journal, six or seven times a year based in Vienna or Krems who, who do get out three. I mean, uh, it, it's sort of like we'd imagine something more or less in the format of, of wine and spirits magazine, but with, uh, with a whole series of columnists on top of, of that and imagine, you know, three of those duking it out in small Austria. So you can see that they have a wine culture in a way that, uh, uh, we can still say it's the envy of the rest of the world. I mean, today, if I want, I mean, people have asked me, uh, about you know, sometimes I think uh, they, it's it's easier for me to write in Austria and 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 occasionally lob bombshells across the uh, uh, across into uh, German territory because a lot of my uh, views about German Riesling have become uh, highly unfashionable uh, in inside Germany of late. But if, even if I wanted to have a a, a, um, a mouthpiece in Germany, I, w I wouldn't know where to go. Uh, there's nothing uh, there, there there's nothing like the uh, uh, the wine advocate or the international wine seller, of course, to be sure. But there's also nothing like a wine spirits or a venaria or a um uh, so it's uh so the you know it really makes a, a, a huge difference that there is this serious wine culture and in the u.s i've really been privileged to to have a little part of creating um a wine culture in the u.s which naturally could never have happened if it weren't for all the evolution of wines on the on the uh, west coast and uh and I did, by the way, as, uh, since I'm now writing about uh, wines from Washington and Oregon, uh, parenthetically, I, I did get involved very early on with the uh, Willamette Valley and, and Oregon because I met uh, David Adelsheim and, and David Glatt uh, in Burgundy through through Becky. And uh, at that time, uh, nobody was uh, really doing anything uh, with those wines. And so I think I was really one of the first people to sell the wines outside of uh, um, uh, of Oregon. But, the, but actually, the irony was that at the same time, the folks in uh, just like... Some people came to Austrian wine through uh, Italy uh, at the back door, and some people through, uh, if you will, the front door in uh, uh, bypassing the Alps, uh, crossing uh, over from Germany. Uh, so I had my uh, window on the Willamette Valley from Burgundy. Well, the folks that uh, my competitors there, MacArthur, with all the wonderful uh, work that they were doing at California wine, they, they were they were a quote unquote discovering the Willamette at the same time, and so all of a sudden had, uh, they they came out with the wines uh, at the same time that I did, and that's just back when. If you had a half a dozen labels, um, you had you had everything serious that uh, that there was. So uh, that was an area that really got me very excited early on. But then again, I sort of seeded the uh, the, the specialized interest in, in those wines uh, to somebody else because you can't travel everywhere. And I finally, I think it was ninety, I believe in nineteen ninety three. Um, I have to look back. Anyway, at some point, because I, I still love California wine, and especially always fascinated by Zinfandel, old old vines, old vineyards. At some point, I realized it was going to become an embarrassment to, to I was an embarrassment to myself personally that I hadn't been out. I really didn't know any, anything about you know what made the, the the business tick there, except for the folks that I got chances to to meet in in my shop, and and, and especially I was and was lucky enough that were that some of the really interesting wine growers in California were interested in in in, in tasting wine from other parts of the world and a lot of people bought wine from me. In fact, in some cases, I didn't even know that these people were proprietors in California. They were just customers of mine. Anyway, so at some point I thought, man, I've got to go out and do this. I told Steve, I said, look, I'd really like to go out and do a, a, a piece on Zinfandel. I'd also heard uh, that uh, somebody that I um, had had uh, gotten to know also through the Burgundian uh, connections was... Um, uh, Larry Turley that he had just started up a, was starting up a winery and they were going to have their first wines and and there were a lot of things happening at that moment. I thought this would be a great time to go. I said, so just let me go. Let me write this report and nobody ever needs to know that I've never been in California in my life. <laughs> and uh, so again, uh, that was the sort of, you know, get to get to show off and act like I knew what I was talking about. Well, I certainly had a lot of experience tasting the wines over the years, but it was the first time that I really got out to 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 visit the vineyards and uh, spend a lot of time with uh, naturally with Paul Draper and Raffinelli's and uh, and uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, with Joel Peterson and uh, you know the the pioneers and and uh, really incredible uh, luck that. Uh, um, that the Berglunds were uh, good friends of a very good friend of mine. And so I got to really tap into the whole um, Joe Swan connection, although unfortunately I uh, came along too late to, to know him personally. But then uh, through all these uh, meetings, I got a chance very, very quickly to sort of fill in all the gaps in, in my tasting experience and taste a lot of older Zinfandel and old field blends. And so that's sort of become a sort of a little passionate uh, 
hobby of mine. And then when I got into distribution, all of a sudden there was a whole California <clears throat> side to the company that I was working on. And so I sort of buttered, buttered in on some of that business and became a little bit involved in, in buying some of the California wines. And certainly then all of a sudden it gave me an excuse to be in Northern California at least once a year. And uh, so, although with that with that one exception um, <clears throat> of my Zin report, which I have to say, if anybody can ever dig it up, still you'll find out that it wears it wears pretty well. Uh, but the, with that exception, I've I've never written directly about California wine, but I've always had a personal passion. And of course, as I say, I originally I originally came into the love of wine really through the uh, through the, the Napa Cabernet uh, gate. So as Pierre Ravani was going back to the trade to work uh, Romassonet, Robert asked you, Robert Parker asked you to cover Burgundy. Um, well, yeah. Um, so actually, the, the the way I got started <clears throat> writing for the Wine Advocate was simply um, along the way, um, Bob and I didn't see one another very often, but we would, you know, occasionally uh, um, correspond and converse. And, uh, you know, at some point after we had uh, done the several years of, of German tasting together and uh, and after I moved out to the uh, to Midwest, you know, he sort of let me know, uh, you know, if you're ever interested in, uh, in, 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 you know, getting together and talking about the possibility of, you know, maybe fitting in and doing something, you know, by all means. And I mean, I had a great relationship working with Steve and, and it really, um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't any reason in my mind at the time to, to want to change horses. But then I guess, you know, sort of a midlife thing, you know, at some point you think, you know, it would really be interesting to 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 work in a in a slightly have a slightly different perspective and to be honest with you I just sort of vaguely I had this sort of inchoate idea that you know perhaps I could parlay the the wine writing into a, at least a portion of my of my business activity because certainly for the most part uh, you know I, I I wrote about wine because I love doing it I was happy to be able to cover my costs and I certainly wasn't doing it to uh, to to raise um, to raise um, capital so uh, I just uh, you know, kind of always kept that in the back of my mind. Uh, and so uh, I sort of rang, rang Bob up and said, well, maybe the, maybe the time is right. And um, then he made a place for me to do German and Austrian reports. We figured I would do some, you know, miscellaneous reports on other parts of the world that, that hadn't been getting covered. And then, of course, um, uh, within a year, um, uh, Pierre announced that he was uh, going back into the, uh, into the trade. And so then that Open up the opportunity for me to propose to Bob that you know to come on uh, full time. So that's uh, that's how that came about. And how many years has that been now? Uh, I guess it's been eight now, seven and a half, eight years. And uh, your portfolio has changed a little bit over the course of that. Yeah, it's changed quite a bit. First of all, I narrowed down because unfortunately, it's extremely uh, challenging for me just to get to uh, uh, processing the uh, uh, the notes and doing the taste. And uh, doing the tasting is the easy part, but just you know processing the notes from so many different parts of the world. So, uh, but. For for several years, I, I the principal um, allocation of my time was uh, Austria, Germany, the Cote d'Or, and and the rest of uh, Burgundy. And then, uh, to the extent that I had opportunity to, on a rotating basis, do Alsace, do Loire, do the um, <clears throat> Languedoc uh, and, and Roussillon, uh, which the um, which by the way, those would really become uh, additional. Uh, Areas that that really excited me as a result of the time that I started to spend more in the trade, especially when I got into distribution, because all of a sudden you're you're faced with the situation you want to find, especially in servicing restaurants, you want to be able to find really interesting wines that have really good price quality rapport, and uh, that naturally took me to that part of the of the world. So, uh, so that was, you know, basically how the portfolio was uh, was staked out, and then uh, with the. Uh, uh, Originally, uh, of course, uh, Antonio Colone was brought on to do Italian wine, but uh, he was he was really keen to try to parlay uh, what he was doing into a, into a, a full time job. And so, um, and again, he he was tremendously enthusiastic about Burgundy, um, and was going to sort of you know be able to um, just confirm the the the, the, the uh, observations that I've made uh, along the way. That uh, you know, if you really have if, if you're a good taster and and you and you and you have an ability to get along with people in their language, then you can, you know, very quickly put yourself in a <clears throat> position where you can, where you can, even though you, even if you don't have huge experience, can say extremely uh, <clears throat> intelligent and insightful things about the wines. And so, uh, uh, so he decided to parlay his expertise in uh, in Italian wine into working in uh, some other areas and had the had the love of uh, of red Burgundy. And so then he took over Burgundy, and then uh, and later on things changed again and gave me the opportunity to. Uh, 
you know, really to sort of want to stake out some portion of territory of what Jay Miller had done. It was pretty obvious that I was going to do the Northwestern United States because you know, I don't uh, speak Spanish and, uh, and I at least had um, significant grounding in the wines from way back from the beginning of the, of the, uh, of interest there. And especially with the Willamette Valley. So I wasn't a complete uh, ignoramus, but again, it was a, it's been great this past year, especially in Washington to, it's sort of the same kind of thrill that I got to have in, in Austria and starting in, in 95, you know, you go to a place where you speak the language uh, where people are co- incredibly friendly and open and you just taste a lot of wonderful wines that you knew nothing about and you have no, um, you, you have no embarrassment in, in going out and visiting vineyards and asking questions that might sound stupid because you don't know anything. I mean, the, if, if, if you've never been to the Wachau and <clears throat> you've never toured those vineyards, then you have really nothing to prepare you for for uh, for the viticultural experience and it's certainly the same thing <clears throat> in washington state uh, i mean for instance uh, one of the amusing things uh, that that happened to me is uh, um, after when uh, the first time i guess maybe that's i think they've done this twice now uh, saint michel and lozen did this uh, um riesling uh, rendezvous or riesling um uh, sure extravaganza in washington and of course invite growers from um <clears throat> from um, uh, Germany. And a couple of times I had a brief, oppor- brief opportunities to talk about uh, with Ernie about what he was doing over there. Although I generally <clears throat> with tasting with his, in those days with his cellar master Bernie, because him, Ernie was uh, on the road um, so much of the time and, and off, he was frequently in, in the United States when I was in Germany. Anyway, um, people, they would come back and report, they say, well, it's just incredible. They're growing Riesling in a desert with irrigation. <laughs> And, and okay, yeah, slopes, but depending on wh- which vineyards they were taken to, a lot of these people didn't even know that there were any steep slopes in Washington State. And and it's true. I mean, it was just like it, it, you, for them, they could have somebody could have told them that they've been growing recently on the moon. It was it was just such a such a revelation. Of course, we have the uh, irrigation problematic uh, in uh, in uh, in the Wachau as well. And uh, so again, it's it's great to be able to go to uh, a place that is so different from from many of the rest of the world and uh, as i say be willing to to uh, ask questions and if you you know if you have a decent grounding in uh, understanding what happens in the cellar and uh, you know uh, what grows why you're able to uh, you're able to uh, pretty quickly make sense of it and it's you know that's just a great privilege uh, i mean i think it's wonderful that there are so many great specialists that are coming in, you know, working wine uh, today. And you think people like Alan Meadows from Burgundy or Peter Lim with the champagne and uh, uh, gurus. But uh, of course, it sounds self-serving coming from me, but I think there's pretty good arguments that uh, it's always important to have generalists as well as specialists. And <clears throat> it's not just exciting to be in the position where you can, uh, you know, at my age, uh, still discover new uh uh, regions of the uh, of the wine world. It it also is really important in terms of the kind of insights uh, and the kind of uh, connection that you have with the consumer. I mean, uh, if if Bob Barker hadn't been at some point discovering those wines al- along with his readers, he could never have, in the same way, um, conveyed the enthusiasm and the and the sense of of discovery. And I think that would have uh, you would have missed a lot of the magic. Uh, that uh, the sort of sparks that that fly between uh, um, a wine writer and uh, and his or her uh, readership, or for that matter, between a, a retailer or, or a sommelier and the and the and the consumers that uh, that they uh, have the opportunity to serve. Uh, so I don't know if there'll be any any more new um, discoveries. Um, how much I can how much I can have on my plate? But actually, for instance, I mean, I love I've loved Giro wine for years, and I used to occasionally maybe make a a, a single day uh, um, uh, visit uh, over to that area. But I always felt from working, even though I worked in a lot of areas that other people considered uh, esoteric, I, I always felt like Jura was just a little bridge too far, especially as I got into distribution and importing. Uh, you can only have so many causes. And now, you know, just recently now, I've had a chance to go back and actually get to know all the top growers. And so uh, to some extent, I really didn't have the... Uh, direct experience there either of course um the other thing i mean it just you, there's, there's always too little 
uh, too little time. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm definitely not, especially scientifically inclined, but I sort of end up trying, and especially in a lot of my columns and all, trying to bring some of the viticultural and winemaking uh, aspects um, to, to bring them down to earth for... Uh, for, for my readership. Uh, and, you know, I seem to have some pretty good success and I, I certainly have a really nice, uh, um, um, chain of, uh, of scientists who very patiently uh, write to me when I have questions and, and walk me through, uh, some of these issues. And so I, I think that, you know, as a result, I have a pretty good, uh, pretty good sense of, uh, of what makes things tick, uh, viticulturally and, uh, what goes on in the cellar. I mean, the big thing that happens when you, when you explore these areas and especially when people who are really involved scientifically, uh, in, in, uh, viticultural issues, when they take you by the hand, what the, the first thing, the amazing thing is you discover how little anybody knows and how little basic research has been done. And so that almost all of the really exciting big questions, including most of the things that people love to propound on, whether it's, you know, the influence of terroir or the influence of certain sorts of yeasts or, uh, the, uh, differences of the different sorts of elevage and so forth, uh, or not to mention, of course, a spectacular example being simply the way the wine uh, evolves in the bottle and the role of, uh, oxygen, <clears throat> uh, and uh, and so for uh, you you discover that the basic research has yet to be done and uh, that's frustrating on the one hand because it keeps you very busy trying to uh, to to understand uh, the issues and and help people grapple with them on the other hand it's 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 pretty thrilling to realize uh, what a brave new world it still is out there so it is a little bit of a new world in many ways as you described the progression uh uh, and maybe career-wise as well, last year the Wine Advocate was reportedly sold in December. Uh, what were your feelings around that situation? Um, I was uh, in the short term uh, surprised, but um, in the longer term, not entirely. I mean, I think that um, you know Bob was waiting for or perhaps hoping for the right opportunity to bring somebody else into the company. And uh, so we, we will we'll go from there. And Antonio Galoni recently announced that he was going to leave and do his own project. What are your feelings around that? Uh, again, just in the last few months, um, I had the feeling, and, and I'm quite sure that this was the case of the boss, too, that uh, that he might be moving on into into his own uh, um, into his own ventures. And uh, so it'll be very interesting to follow that, and naturally will mean some, some changes uh, at the Wine Advocate. And... Uh, Exactly what the nature of those will be is uh, is still in the uh, still in in the works. David Shulkinek, thank you for being here today. You're very welcome. David Shulkinek of the Wine Advocate. Yeah, I hope that wasn't too much monologue. All drink to that is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.